We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pros, when the job demands more of the supplies you use most, start with Lowe's. Because at Lowe's, we stock the right quantities you need for any size job. And at Everyday Savings, like up to 30% off drywall, drywall accessories, and insulation every day when you buy in bulk. Order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster. For your next job and the next, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome, Gator fans, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams. I'm right here beside my co-host, James DiVirgilio. We're excited to be back after another Gator win. James, how you feeling this week? Was this another ugly win for the Gators or something maybe better? Something maybe in between. I mean, it was still pretty ugly, and we're going to dissect it and get into it here. Um, but it was a win, and you know, I think we talked about last week. We're at the point now where we, we kind of knew what we were and what we are, and we just have to win. And we've done that. And Seven and one in conference play. Yeah, we continue to do that. The Starlight Lounge presents an evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi oh. This next one's for you too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of themes that came out of the game. Maybe not as many interesting things that have gone on in the past. I think the big question mark going into the game, as we illustrated, was could we run the ball? Eh, not really was the answer. That was a bit disappointing. Would Treon take some steps forward? 
maybe we'll talk about some of the things he did well. You know, there were still a lot of other things that he obviously shows that he doesn't do very well, which doesn't give you hope against a better defense. So, you know, we got beat by a trick play. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that sort of happen in this game, but another dominant performance by the defense for the most part until the fourth quarter got a little sketchy. They had only allowed 44 yards going to the fourth quarter, which is kind of amazing that an offense could be that inept, you know, outside of somebody like Vanderbilt or an FCS team or something. So we're just crushing them up until, you know, things got a little sideways there in the fourth quarter. So another dominant performance by our defense, which is nice to see. Yeah, and just validating, you know, several games ago, I said that I thought Jeff Collins was better than, than Will Muschamp on the defensive end. And he all he's done, I feel like, is really just proved that to be completely correct. South Carolina, although playing a walk-on in Perry Orth, uh, was a formidable offense the past couple of weeks. We talked about it on last week's show. They've been putting up 450 yards a game. They had been very dangerous. Uh, they did it against Tennessee. You know, in Tennessee, had been feisty. Uh, you know, they played Alabama really tight the week before that. So this was not an offense that was accustomed to just getting completely and utterly shut down. Uh, but lately, that's what we've been doing. You know, Vandy's, again, offense is terrible. South Carolina's offense statistically is terrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're a juggernaut. But they had been playing well. They had momentum on their side. And we really just took that away from them, which was important because once again, you know, we really didn't produce very many points on offense. And right. so we're going to have to keep winning this way. Well, and it was a noon kick at a playing in the game after we'd already clinched the SEC East. We were wondering if this was going to be a letdown. And I felt like the team came out and executed early on. You know, they didn't, you know, have an emotional letdown, I don't think. But they also didn't, you know, come out all crazy and do stupid stuff you know that i think that was a good moment for the team to go up there and take care of business which is really what this game was so it's not a big rivalry it's not like high stakes but they need to go in there you know if they're going to keep their outside you know hopes of the playoff alive they need to go in there and win and they did that and you know i thought that was meaningful for this team it's, it's been par for the course for this mackerel team that they have showed up in all the moments that they're supposed to they really have and it's really been impressive i mean as much as everyone knows, I've, I have been critical and, and, and analytically so of Treon. We always want to separate this. This is not any personal bias towards any one play or anything said on the show. It's, it's purely going to be analytics and, and very critical of the offense, of the production. But if you look around the SEC, you see a lot of really weird results that are going on week to week. You don't see any weird results with us. Uh, we lost to LSU in a game on the road at night on Treon's first start. We had a chance to win that game. We were tied late. Outside of that, and outside of the Tennessee game, you could really say that we were in control for large stretches of most of the games we played, which is really impressive. I mean, the Vanderbilt game, we should have been obliterating them in the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes of that game. In this game, we were certainly in control. It should have been more. And that's a testament to, to McIlwain, obviously, his attention to detail, his ability to prepare the team on a week-by-week -week basis. And again, you have to look at this for what it is. We're winning with below average quarterback play on the road in the SEC against an opponent that gave A&M and Alabama and, um, sorry, not Alabama, and Tennessee a game very recently right down to the wire. And we just kind of walked in, handled business, and the game was really boring until that last eight-minute stretch, which is a huge testament to this football team. Well, I think the big headline here, if you go on the road in your conference and get a win, that's huge. You look at some of the other Potential playoff contenders, Stanford, Utah, people lost games this week and essentially knocked themselves out of the playoff. And those, neither of those games, they probably felt like they should have lost going into that week, uh, but they did. And so Florida went on the road, got a win. 
Let's talk about the quarterback play because, you know, as we, we talk about the quarterbacks every week on this podcast because it's the most important position in all of football. And so how your quarterback goes, usually how goes your team. So with Treon this week, were there some small improvements made or was it just that we were going up against the inferior defense? It was definitely both. Uh, the, the most notable improvement that I think probably everyone watching saw was that he was much calmer in the pocket. He actually threw balls from the middle of the pocket. Uh, he stood tall and didn't just escape the pocket. So that was a, that was a marked improvement for Treon. He certainly did that. He did execute throws from that area. And that had not been done before. That so was good. That is, an, that is an improvement. On the flip side of the coin, um, his pocket presence, it, it continues to just be really poor. I mean, if you, if you go back and you watch the film, there's multiple opportunities for Treon to slide left or right into the pocket. And if he does that, uh, he, he's either A, going to be able to run for significant yardage, or B, by himself another one or two seconds. And there was a notable play where he actually slides backwards into uh, you know, a, a, an on-rushing defensive end. And the offensive line had done a perfect job. You had a pancake on the defensive tackle. You had the defensive end pushed all the way, way outside. If Treon goes up and to the left, he's into clear space uh, and Stubby wind up losing five or six yards. And that happened maybe seven or eight or nine times during the game. So pocket presence is continuing to be a problem for him. His footwork struggles, if he can't throw the ball standing still, if he has to move his feet and reset on platform, he never gets back to a position of power. You see a lot of his balls float. They dovetail. Um, you know, Obviously, the pass to Cronkite that wound up being a touchdown was a really poor pass. We got very fortunate there. That, that wasn't a pick. It really should have been. Um, great play by Cronkite. So there were some things that he did better, but I think the ultimate fear or problem is South Carolina is not a very good team. They played a lot of zone. Um they, they don't necessarily play zone very well. So he had some nice, big, comfortable windows to throw to on his first read. He's not going to get that look against Florida State. He's certainly not going to get it against Alabama. But, but you know, take that with the fact that he did stand tall. He did make some throws from the pocket. But ultimately, when you look at the numbers, you know, the production, just not quite there. 58% or so passing. Um, most of our, let's face it, he really technically put 10 points on the board. Yeah, it's tough. You want to see more improvement. But I would say there were a few encouraging signs. Before this week, I don't know if we'd seen him, well, I won't say consistently, or even really at all, you know, drop back, hit the back of his drop, and actually release the ball to a receiver that was wide open. You know, he just wouldn't let go. So I think the coaching staff got him to trust a little bit more. It's like, this guy's open, just throw it, you know. And... You know, he made a few of those throws. He made a few of his first reads and even second reads. Uh, he wasn't always picking the right option. Sometimes you get locked in on a guy, which lots of quarterbacks. Greer did that too much. That's a that's a common mistake. Um, so he's still light years away from a quarterback. I think that we would need to beat a team in the upper echelon of college football. But a few fa- small steps, I think. Yeah, I think that's actually the best way to say it. Is, is every time I read an article where someone says that Treon's making vast improvement and Treon's doing this stuff, it's either the hope machine or or whatever they're they're queuing up because it, it's not there. Look, Treon's not going to get to this point. We've been saying that. He's not going to get to the point to be a quarterback that's going to win you a game against a marquee opponent. He's not there. Doesn't mean you can't win a game like that. It's college football. Teams are, are very volatile, but certainly he's not going to get to that point. Does that mean he's not improving? No, I mean, I think he actually did improve. That's a testament to the coaching staff. But still, Treon will be the worst backup McElwain will have as we go forward. 
every year after this one, the backup to our starter will be better than what Treon is now in McIlwain's system. And that's going to be a testament to McIlwain picking the guys he wants. Because he'll be able to recruit. Correct. We're going to have someone in here. You know, we have Del Rio is going to be on the roster next year. Presumably he will be better than Treon will be as a backup. And then after next year, you probably really get into a situation where our backup quarterback is, is very able to play within McIlwain's system. So we're kind of suffering through it now. But all in all, like we said, um, South Carolina has made everyone look good. They didn't really make Treon look great, which is maybe the bummer. If Treon looks great in this game, maybe you take something from him. He just kind of looked like Treon, but he made some more throws from the middle. So, um, you know, I'm not sure if we learned anything novel in that particular game. But one thing we did learn is that we can't really stop a trick play. Like Jeff Collins, for all of his incredible wizardry, we we just continue to get burned by trick plays. What do you make of this? Is this an aggressiveness situation? Is it, What's going it's on here? It's strange because we've gotten beat by two different Quarterback receptions, as weird as to say that, you know, both in the Tennessee game and in this one. And both times, like, really significant moments in the game. And so, and there's been some other trick plays, notably LSU and a few other things, where I don't know. I, I don't know if it's us being overly aggressive or just not recognizing when something is going sideways. I, I don't know really what the fix is. Because I don't know that I would want to take away some of our aggressiveness. I, I would rather us be clamping down on offense and there might be an option of a trick play rather than us playing much more conservative and the and teams moving the ball on us more consistently. So I guess if I'm going to have to choose, I'll, I'll take our style of defense with the option that there might be a few trick plays in there. Um, because I think you can continue to try and clean those up, some of their recognition keys about when something weird is happening. What about you? Yeah, I feel like that was just a good play. You know, if you watch the replay, we recognize that play. Uh, you know, our defensive end on the weak side noticed it maybe a step and a half too late. Um, I think you actually said when we were watching the game that the good news is going forward, since every single player in their defense has gotten beat by this play, they'll probably never get beat by it <laughs> for the rest of their careers, which may, which may be true. It may be true, but I think that's the right way to look at it. I thought the one Tennessee pulled off against us was really not nearly as good. The one South Carolina ran was, was really good. It was fast. It was efficient. I mean, it was in a good spot to do it. Sometimes you run a good play. You know, if we're on the flip side sure. of that and we're talking about us running that play, we're talking about what a great play call it was. Uh, I think that that's just a good play. And I think it's a testament to Jeff Collins' defense. People cannot beat Jeff Collins' defense. So they have to put in all sorts of ridiculous gadget plays that's to attempt to do it, which means that you're doing what you want to be doing as a defensive coordinator. But conventionally, they can't move the ball, so they got to do some weird stuff. And if you run enough weird stuff occasionally... Right, and if we can just increase our margin for error with a better offense, which is what we've talked about this whole time, then those plays don't matter. You get one of those a game and you're beating teams 35 okay. seconds. It's just strange, but I guess teams are more likely to try strange stuff against us because they can't move it uh, how they would originally have planned to. Let's move on and talk about some of the individual performances. Some good, some bad. Uh, offensive line, pretty shaky against you would hope they'd play better against South Carolina uh, I know you noticed Martez Ivy getting kind of roughed a bad day for the office for him yeah just a rough day he's a freshman I mean certainly he probably had his worst day as a Gator I mean there might have been four or five plays where he actually just got straight beat off the snap there was no stunting there was nothing special going on he just got beat and you know when you when you allow a defensive tackle on on hike basically to walk into the backfield whatever play you have set up is, is going to be blown up and some they, of it was mental some of it was physical mm -hmm. like yeah he just was stood out uh as some very obvious blunders i don't think the offensive line played where very well as a whole 
but yeah, rough day for him. Yeah, tough, tough situation. And of course, part of the problem, this goes back to the Muschamp era. I harped on this all the time last year. We're very predictable on offense, even when we're being unpredictable with our play calling. And what that means is that teams don't necessarily have to worry about Treon getting rid of the ball quickly, getting rid of it on time. So teams can sell out on run a lot more often without getting punished severely in the passing game. And so it's not that our play calling is predictable because it's really not, especially in this last game. We had a great first down production. Matt Goleen talked about that today in his press conference, and he's right. Really solid on first down. Lots of positive first down plays. Uh, but that did not help us in the run game, which leads you to believe that teams are very comfortable stopping the run and taking chances in the back end with the pass and us not punishing them. And, and that was true. We didn't. The game was 17-14 because we could not punish them enough to, to get a lead, which we should have gotten against a team like that. So that game plan is working against us. And you'll, see, you'll see teams employ that more often. And a guy who's been up and down this year, fantastic against the run, a little sketchy against the pass, one of our favorite subjects on the podcast, Marcus May, had a pretty major blunder late in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and you know, it, here, to quantify these errors, it, there's some errors like hustle errors, effort errors. You're going to take those as a coach. Like, you give your all and you're going to get beat sometimes. That's sport. You never want to be making the same mistakes multiple times, and I think that's why we'll bring up Marcus May. It, it, he's been an incredible run stopper. He's very important to the team. I mean, definitely. But there's situations where Marcus May just does things that are not smart, and he's done the same mistake. And, and the prime example of that is the touchdown of Farrell Cooper. Uh, you know, we're in what looks to be like a cover two. And in that situation, you've got Brian Poole underneath in his zone. And they run, you know, the slot receiver on a square in. And they run Farrell Cooper on just a seam route. And Marcus May, the safety, should always be in the deepest guy. He comes underneath to jump that, to jump that, not even really jumping it. He's still above the square. And he's in no man's land. And stands flat-footed as Farrell Cooper, the best receiver on South Carolina, runs by him. That's just something you can't do. If there's one guy that's going to make a that play there, the yeah, that point of the game, if there's one guy that's going to make a play on South Carolina's team, it's Farrell Cooper. We talked about it last year. I mean, last week. You have to be paying attention to that guy to safety at all times. And, and that's just one of those situations that, that teams can put us in. And thankfully, we haven't played great passing offenses. Because our secondary is really good, and we've talked about this. Our safeties struggle to cover. But we don't face teams that can really do those kind of things to you, and we probably really won't face one unless we make the playoff which is nice because that, that tends to be a glaring error. But, um, you know, flipping over to the other side, what would you think about Kelvin Taylor and his performance in this game? Yeah, I wanted to take a moment here and just kind of pray in praise of Kelvin. I, I think he's been really underrated for what he's able to accomplish for the most part behind this offensive line. Some of his cuts and vision, and that's what people talk about with him, but I thought it really stood out in this game. Making plays where I think other running backs would have gotten – you know, caught behind the line or run into the wrong hole is he's taking advantage of the small opportunities that he's given. And obviously he came up with a huge run there at the end of the game where, man, it's third and eight and we're about to punt the ball back to them if we don't pick this up. And he runs it, you know, 50 yards and then finishes it off on the next play. So just thought a really solid game from him when we really needed it. And so I, I don't know if we give him enough credit for the kind of real spade work he's doing behind you know, a very inexperienced offensive line. Yeah, he's doing a great job protecting the ball, too. You think of how yeah. many carries he's gotten, and he, he just really doesn't ever fumble, which is amazing. And cool. then that's, that's you know, super important when we're a team that has virtually no margin for error. And speaking of fumble risk, though, another person on the podcast who we've criticized a little bit, Demarcus Robinson, D-Rob, um, had some nice moments in this game. 
He did. He did. And most notably was the, the first down catch uh, as we had the ball back. It's a tense game. You're up three. South Carolina has all momentum. If you're a Gator fan, you're probably thinking, oh, no, we're going to lose this game now. And uh, he makes a diving catch on a poorly thrown ball, which was which was fantastic. I mean, that, that was a huge, huge play. play. Definitely. And then, like you mentioned, Kelvin on a third and eight, where we're basically just taking a knee and punting to play defense and, you know, put yourself back in the game mode as a fan and think about what it's like if we're punting the ball to South Carolina who scored twice in a row in less than four minutes with a chance for them to take the lead. That's what that moment was going to be until the O-line did a phenomenal job there and Kelvin hits one cutback and we're off to the races. And, you know, the O-line, that was that, they held their blocks there. That, that was one of the few times where nice. all the linebackers were engaged. So great, great job winning the game. And McIlwain keeps saying this, and sometimes it's coach speak. This year it's not coach speak. Like this team has been thrown a curveball by losing Will Greer. They've had to fight to win games at the end, but they know how to win. This is a team that knows how to win. And in college football, that's an invaluable trait, is just being able to win a game at the end. Agreed. And they've done that. So let's celebrate that. A few moments in the game. I know a couple of your famous favorite moments amongst the coaching staff. Yeah, there were there were some great ones. Uh, obviously, Max' reaction to the touchdown pass to Cronkite. to Cronkite, when at first he's just, he just got you know, his hands on his head, then on his knees, and... That's what I love about Mac. Is is here he is. He's not celebrating that play. He's thinking, oh my gosh, like everyone else, that was really a disaster situation. Cronkite makes a phenomenal comeback to the play. Yeah, huge play to the by ball a freshman play. there. Huge play by a freshman. The game could be different without that. But that reaction was priceless. And then maybe even better than that was Jeff Collins with this smug look on his face holding up the marker when Tabor gets the pick to like come over and write your name on the get the ball board where Tabor signs his name. That was just great. really fun stuff like you can just see that the team and the coaches they've got a nice togetherness about them uh even on the road in a game like this like there's a nice level of goal setting goal achieving and then the relationship between coach and player that's that's certainly fun to see and i know we've talked about McElwain, the job he's done connecting with players um just any other thoughts on that like i know you've been impressed with him like the way he's handled certain guys you know, he, he has a really forward-thinking uh, process here. And last week, we didn't get to talk about it, but last week's press conference, he mentioned uh, Demarcus Robinson and his, his choice, as he would call it. It's Demarcus Robinson's choice to carry the ball the way he wants to. And, of course, he fumbled the ball, you know, in this particular situation. And um, I, McElwain is this, you know, he's from Montana. He's very much the individual responsibility kind of guy. And when you hear him tell stories about the players, it's very forward-thinking. It's the opposite of the coaching autocrat, which was really what coaching was. If you go back to Paul Brown or you go back to Vince Lombardi or any of the greats in the game, fast forwarding to today and you look at most of the guys that we know that are retiring were much more autocratic than they would be what a guy like McElwain is. He's really very much like, I'm going to give you the best practices and then I'm going to let you make your decision for how you want to play the game. And there are consequences to your actions. You will hurt the team if you choose certain paths which I think is very empowering. I also think it's on point with our culture. And he shared this great story last week where he said, you know, last year under the Muschamp uh, system, they kept Demarcus Robinson on the coaching sideline on offense, every really basically every single passing formation so they could tell him what route to run. And McElwain's quote was, look, I just don't think that's any way to go through life. Do you want to go through life having to be told what route you're going to run and always having to be on the coach's sideline? You know, no, I want to empower this guy to learn and understand that this is what's going to better him, but he's not going to make him do it, so to speak. And I, and I think that's a really fascinating 
sort of philosophy that McIlwain has applied, and obviously it's worked wonders already with this team. You can see the way they play, and it's unique. There's not a lot of coaches that take that kind of individual responsibility tactic in college football. Most of them are very controlling. So I find it to be a very interesting thing. It'll be something to watch as as we go forward with his coaching tenure. Giving people opportunity to succeed or fail and make a choice about how they're going to help the team. I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, we'll see how this goes for McIlwain. You know, he's, he's still the new guy, a lot of momentum on his side. We'll see how it goes if things, you know, aren't working that way. And I, I have confidence he's going to handle that in a way that's going to be compelling for the team too. So with that, let's bring on our Gator Nation guest who's going to come to us from from overseas uh, this week. International. Yeah, he's he's a guy that obviously did some great things here at the university and then is in an area in France more recently that has been stuck with a little bit of tragedy. So this will be maybe a little different interview than what we've done in the past, but uh, we'll get to talk to him about a few. We are joined now by former Gator basketball star, Will You Get. I'm really excited to talk to him, our first international guest, talking to us all the way from France. So, Will, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Yeah, tell us what you're up to these days. What's life like for you? Well, pretty much uh, I play in Paul in the southwest part of France. I'm in the first league here, so I'm pretty much practicing every day, twice a day. And play on a, on a weekend on Saturday, so it's pretty much my life right now. Just try and play basketball, eat, sleep, and practice, do it over again. That's it. And travel a little bit, you know, explore sometimes. But other than that, it's just basketball kind of just takes uh, most of my time. So, obviously, a lot going on in Paris this weekend. Um, can you just even walk us through some of your thoughts and emotions um, from all that's been happening? Uh, well, I was, um, I was having a game on Friday, Friday night on the road in uh, Rouen, which is about an hour from Paris. And, you know, we won that game, and that was a good game for us, you know, world win. But uh, after the game, I was just getting messages about something was happening in Paris. So I, uh, I called my parents, and uh, they pretty much explained to me what was happening. And it was just... Chaos, pretty much. He, I couldn't believe it. Um, the way he just organized it and uh, how much people were, you know, killed and uh, it's more like the 300 people that were injured. And uh, it was just, just really, really sad. A really, really sad time for, for, for Paris and for France. And this, this weekend has been kind of weird uh, for, for all of us because we still don't, you know, realize what happened. But, um, yeah, it was just seeing pictures and videos, it's even worse. It's just, uh, it's, it's really, really sad that uh, these innocent people have to just die like that. And uh, there's, there could be, it could have been any of us because they just went to random places, restaurants, they went to an opera. And uh, it was just tough because, I mean, I don't know anybody that was directly affected by it, but I have some people that know some people that, you know, obviously were in those all those places, and uh, it happened fast. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just tough. Uh, kind of just want to stay together and support one another right now in France. Yeah, what's the general discussion right now 
in France? I mean, I know there's still a lot of processing going on because it's so fresh and it just happened, but what are the conversations that are going on each day about security, safety, maybe what to do in the future to prevent this? I mean, just what, what, what are people talking about as they're reflecting on what happened? There's a lot. There's a lot. There were, first of all, there was eight guys who were involved. Seven of them were killed. There's one guy still kind of running around in, in France, still looking for him. That's the, that's the main thing. Uh, second of all, you know, they kind of uh, quote-unquote closed the, the borders, but just security is, is, is at the highest now. You know, there's cops, there's a lot more cops, and they're trying to just be aware and uh, trying to make sure everybody feels safe because they feel like it can happen in the next few weeks. Something else can happen in the next week. So they're trying to stay on edge and we're trying to figure out, you know, how do they, how do, they do it? And um, trying to find the, the guy that, is look, that they're looking for, first of all. And uh, maybe he probably will be able to help them. But right now, they just okay, want to go to war. They just started, started bombing yesterday in Syria. And uh, as a response, but they just want to make sure that, you know, we all feel safe here. And just want to make sure that uh, friends stay together in this time and um, kind of just stay solid and uh, just keep believing that you're going to fight this and you're going to get through that tough time. And that's kind of what's the mindset right now because people are outside, you know, walking, even though the day after uh, the president was saying that, you know, you guys should probably stay in and uh, make sure you, you only get outside if you really have to. People are outside walking and uh, just showing the support. So you just just want to make sure we stay together. That's the that's the main goal, and uh, let the you know the big the big guys do do the job and uh, uh, make sure that they they're keeping us safe. Well, we're certainly all praying for you here in Gainesville in the U.S. It's something that's you know weighing on our hearts and minds. Obviously, whenever freedom um, is attacked. So switching gears, which is it's a hard transition from a tragedy like that to talking about a sporting event. But uh, talking about the Gator basketball team before we go into the football team, what are your thoughts on, obviously, uh, our new coach, the team? I know you're familiar with some of the players there. Do you have any experience with, uh, with Coach White? Uh, not at all. I talked to him a little bit during the summer, and he told me that I think he was at Ole Miss as an assistant coach before. Or somewhere else, but he told me what used to recruit me. He was recruiting me when I was in high school. That's the only thing I remember. But uh, other than that, uh, I don't really know him personally. I talked to him for a little bit, and he seemed kind of like a nice guy. And uh, wanted to just wait to go work. And I just hope that they have a have a solid season, and uh, that they actually uh, just fight every game and uh, just play at the best abilities and just make sure they just go out there and just play with the heart. Because I think that's kind of what I was missing last year a little bit and uh you know just go out there and uh, make sure they get the, work, the the job done i watched them play a little bit against uh, the first game against army they're kind of struggling a little bit at the beginning of the game but they ended the game pretty well so um, just gotta go to the next game i think they play today right or tonight yes, yes. that's right yep uh, so yeah so we'll see how- what's your expectation for the team this year do you think they'll make the tournament oh uh i don't I don't know, to be honest. They have a, it's a new coach, a lot of new guys. Uh, I think it's still early uh, to to think about that. It's a long season. A lot of things can happen. Uh, I, just, I just think they're just trying to just uh, get in the flow of the season and just trying to find an identity for their team, first of all. So hopefully they can, you know, 
win some games, uh, going into the, the conference games, just feel confident. And uh, it's still early in, early in the year, so I hope they make it. You know, I think they have the ability to make it because they have really, really good players. You know, Dodo returning, uh, they have Casey Hill, Devo, nice playing. They have a lot of young guys that can, you know, that can help. So I think that, you know, they have a team to do it, but it's just a long season. And we're going to have to put some games together and start, on, you know, keep winning and uh, at least just fight every single game and compete. Well, since this is a football podcast, I think we be amiss if we didn't ask you about it. What are your thoughts on the team this year? Have you been able to watch much of them? Uh, a little bit. I watch some of the games because uh, when they play, I'm able to you know, stay up. But uh, they are having a really, really good season, uh, obviously, from, from last year. You know, it's a difference. And I think that, you know, when they're winning, everybody's just really, really happy and excited. So that's so much to plus. Yeah, it's been a fun season so far. So they're playing Florida Atlantic University this weekend. The Gators are favored by 31 points. Do you think they'll win by that much? Uh, I don't know. I just don't know, but uh, I just think that the defense are really good. Uh, I just think that also we were having just a solid season, and I just think that they find a way to get the, the, the job done, regardless of about 30 points or 10 or 15. They, they find a way to get the win this weekend. All right, Will, I know you've had a lot of good moments as a Gator basketball player and as a as a Gator student in general. Could you tell us a story or maybe a moment that is your favorite moment as a Gator? Uh, one of my favorite moments as a Gator was uh, obviously going to the Final Four my senior year. was really special because we, you know, we kind of fought three years to get to that point. Um, you know, obviously I was coming up from knee surgery, I was thinking about registering as well. So us making up to the final four was really special for us. Uh I was winning a lot of games doing my you know my teammates and the guys that you know some of the guys I came with, Scotty, Casey and Pat was really special for me. Uh, and for us because uh, we worked really hard to get there. So I think that the whole process, you know, us getting there and uh, making it to the Final Four was really, really special. Uh, you know, the last game at home, senior night, was special as well because we, uh, well, it was the last game in Odom. And uh, just looking back at, you know, how far we came and uh, well, all the things we've been through, not only on the, on, on the court, but actually off the court as well. And how much we grew as players, as human beings, was just really special. I mean, I have a lot of moments I can talk to you guys about for, for an hour or two hours if you want to. But <laughs> really, we make the final four was really special for us because uh, we worked really hard for it. And uh, we were winning a lot of games, so everybody was kind of waiting for us to, to slip up and, 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 and to lose, to lose uh, early. But uh, we, you know, we kind of just stayed together and uh, kind of put away all distractions. And to, to finally make it to the Final Four after after three years of not making it. So, yep, that's yeah. one of my favorite moments. Yeah, three years of rather heartbreaking losses, obviously, for both yourself yeah, and, for the, and for the fans. Yeah, yeah, those were some tough, tough ways to end seasons. Yeah, it was. That's, that's tough. I mean, that's kind of what Chris basketball is. And, you know, once you go to the tournament, the big dance, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy because it's mentally it's challenging. And, uh, you know, us going there three years, and now making it, you know, everybody talk about 288, 288, but you don't get a ring for that, you know, you don't, you just, you just know you just fell short pretty much, you know, so 
I'm glad we made it. You know, obviously we lost after that, but just making it was really special because we, you know, we worked really hard and everywhere we had to hear about, you know, how we didn't make it the year before we were so close and what's going to happen this year, blah, blah, blah. And we were able to just do it. So it's just really, really show us, you know, what, how much adversity we went through and uh, what it meant for us to, to, to stay together and, uh, and make it happen uh, my last year. That was really special for us. Yeah, it was certainly nice validation. So we love to ask every one of our Gator Nation guests what their favorite restaurant is in Gainesville. And I know you were here when you were a college student. I know you come back also every uh, so often. So give me your favorite restaurant spot in Gainesville. Uh, I love um, Dragonfly. It's a good choice. Dragonfly was the one. I- Excuse me? That's a good choice. Yeah, I that place every single time. When when I went back, I had to go there. I went back to somewhere I had to go there. I'm not a big fan of sushi. I never really been a big fan of it until I went there, and uh, <laughs> I just I was mind blown. Yeah, that's my favorite, one of my favorite restaurant. I think uh, I like other restaurants, but Dragonfly is really definitely on the top because I just like the atmosphere. I like you know the food there, and uh, especially because I'm not really a big fan of sushi, but. That place, what they make there is just, for me, it's just stunning and just, just really good. Yeah. So, one of our favorites as well. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely one yeah. of our favorites. That's a great, great choice, Will. So, Will, yeah, thank you so oh. much for calling in all the way um, from France. We really appreciate you taking a few moments. I know uh, you're one of Gator Nation's favorites, and they're, I'm sure they're excited to hear that you're doing well and that you're safe and sound. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And uh, wish you guys the best. And uh, keep praying for France. And I hope that, you know, we all get to this tough time. And uh, I'll just say it again, go Gators. Go Gators. Thanks, Will. So let's talk now about this week's opponent, Florida Atlantic. Uh, they're a team that has the majority of its roster from the state of Florida, which is interesting. We're going to have a lot of these guys that played high school football together playing against each other here in the Swamp this weekend. As far as their stats go, they're 105th on offense. Um, they're down near the bottom, very similar numbers on defense. They're very much a program that is coming into this game, sort of attempting to establish a new identity under a new coach, Charlie Partridge. So they're two and eight. They have played some teams close. Uh, they, they were hanging with Miami for a long time, well into the third quarter, uh, down in Coral Gables earlier this year. They play within two scores of teams like Marshall and Western Kentucky. So this is not New Mexico State, but is this a team that can upset us? I'm just going to say no. Uh, (laughs) uh, There is, I guess, a chance we saw Georgia Southern come into the swamp and beat us, but this is a different team. I would, this feels outside the realm of possibility. I know it's not, but I'm just going to say no, um, that there's no real chance for an upset. So it's really about how well the Gators play. Uh, I don't know. What are you expecting from them? Like, are you feeling that they're going to come up and put up a fight, or they're just going to roll over? I definitely think they're going to put up a fight. I mean, like we talked about, there's there's huge familiarity there. They've beaten FIU, which is the team that was sort of ahead of them. If you look at program building, and they they beat them this year, thirty one seventeen. They've played with Miami. Miami is certainly not us, but they. It's not like they're going to come in and think we can't play with these guys. And they are a very fast team. So they have a lot of team speed. Right. So this is not a team that comes in where you just overwhelm them with your speed. These are fast players. Yes, they're undersized. Yes, they don't have all the intangibles that you might have or the tangibles even that you're going to have on a team like Florida. But 
look, we still have a thin margin for error. And FAU, although they're 2-8, and eight, like we said, is not a team that's getting pasted by 40 points every week. This is not that kind of team. And Western Kentucky is a team that's good. I mean, they've come in and they've beaten SEC teams. They can play with teams. So I'm not going to say there's a chance of an upset. Um, obviously, anything can happen in college football. I think McElwain's preparation is what allows for the Gators to win a game like this. If maybe you switch coaching staffs, so I'm, I'm afraid about this kind of game because FAU is a team, like we said, that's not going to roll over. They're going to play tough. But they, they do not have the talent yet to match up with us. And, and that should be something that should carry the day. But, you know, really, these games always kind of scare you because it's a sandwich game between your main rival. And this team would love nothing more than to beat you and put themselves on the map in the state of Florida. So with that, we do have some injuries this week. Do you think those are going to affect us? And who are we missing? So no Alex McAllister, no Jordan Sherritt, both you know defensive ends, pass rushers. Uh Against a better team, that would scare me. But I think I, – I wonder if those guys could play. If we were playing FSU this week, I wonder if they would play. But there's no real reason to play them. We have a lot of depth on the defensive line. Even if Bullard doesn't play, who, who was – to use McElwain's terms, highly questionable last week and then you know played a ton of snaps. Uh, I think our defensive line is still going to be very overwhelming, even without the real speed guys coming from the outside. It uh, doesn't really worry me. You know, if I'm going to be like a conspiracy theorist, it's like maybe we get no pressure and they move the ball and, oh gosh, that's not, you know, that would be the doomsday scenario. But I, I'm not really worried. They're still so much ahead of this team. They have so much to play for. They, in their minds, you hear them talking about, they're thinking about the playoffs. So they're still hopefully going to be focused on taking care of business on Saturday. Uh, what do you think the keys are from us? Like, you know, not really to win, but what do you want to see from us in terms of, playing well well i think it's one and one in the same and then maybe a slight derivation so in order to win it's going to be turnovers it's going to be like the vanderbilt game uh the only way you're going to ever lose to a team like fau is if you just turn the ball over a bunch of times and give them a bunch of cheap points because fau's offense cannot score on our defense if they have to move down the field so that that's one thing what i'm looking for style wise obviously is a chance for Trion to play in this game uh, and I don't know how many snaps he'll get. I don't know if we'll give someone else reps. Uh, we probably will, but there's no talk about that just yet. I'm looking for him to continue to attempt to improve some fundamentals, pocket presence, sliding, throwing from the pocket. This is an opportunity to build confidence going into Florida State. I expect the staff to attempt to build his confidence on things that he's not good at. So I'm, I'm looking to see, basically, do they fill Treon up with a bunch of simple throws that he can hit to make him feel good? Or does McIlwain stay true to himself and attempt to get him to continue to make passes that are not in his comfort zone in an effort to better prepare him for what he's going to face as we head into the gauntlet that will be Florida State, Alabama, and if by some miracle we win that, a playoff? Yeah, I think what I would want is for him to recognize that he can make those plays. He's got the physical tools to do it, not on a super high level, but the guys are open. Like, if he will just do what they're asking him to do, we could be so much more successful. Even on a tailored down, simplified offense, there are still guys open. If you'll just throw the ball and make the right reads, he did a little bit of that against South Carolina. If he does some more of that against FAU, maybe he'll continue to start to trust the coaching staff when they say, hey, slide up in the pocket. You're going to have space. Throw to this first read. When you get this look from the defense, it's going to be open. You know what? If it's a crazy mistake, We'll own it. Just trust us. And if he begins to do that a little bit more, you know, I think we can have some 
more incremental success against the better teams. Um, okay, let's let's do some predictions here. We're we open this week as a 31 point favorite, which is a huge line for a team like us who doesn't score very efficiently. <laughs> what is your thought? Do we win by 31 or more? You know, my thought on this is I'm not betting on that. I'll tell you that right now. If I'm betting, I'm probably taking FAU. But that's dependent on my favorite subject of all, game theory, and and I'll leave it at this. If FAU comes in with a game plan that is to basically maximize their possession time and minimize the amount of risk-taking they will do, in which they will then punt and play defense, and they are able to be somewhat successful with that game plan, we will not beat them by 31 points. However... FAU has tended to be a team that wants to be aggressive on offense, is trying to build a style, and probably isn't going to do what Derek Mason at Vanderbilt did, nor do they have the defense to back that up. So that's probably where the 31-point line is intriguing, is there's certainly a scenario where we could do that. But I'm going to I'm gonna say that we don't. I just don't feel like we're going to be able to get the cover on that because they haven't lost. I don't even know if they've lost a game this year by 31 points. You know, Miami beat them by 24 in a game that was tight. The past two games or the past three games, they've lost relatively close. So... I'm going to say no. I'm going to say we should be in the 30s and they should be around 10. And that's going to be because they get risky. We turn them over. They fumble. We sack them. We run kicks back. Not because we score 30 plus points on offense. So I'm going to go with 35 to 10 as my score, which is a 25 point differential, which would be a fine win. If we do go over 31 points, depending on what the style looks like, I could be on the show on Monday somewhat excited because FAU is a weird team. They're 2-8, but they're, they're not a horrible football team. What do you uh, got? Okay, I'm going to be like right on this pretty much. Uh, I was going to say 42-10, to 10, and I think that's going to be a result, like you said, of us getting some you know defensive plays here, some Jalen Tabor interceptions, maybe a whole house one. Maybe we'll finally get Vernon into the end zone. You know, He's a little bit cursed. He will intercept and get tackled on the one every time. So I, I think that's going to happen. I think there will be some more holes for us. You'll see maybe Scarlett or Kelvin break a long run. There should be a little more space for those bigger kind of plays. And like I, th- like I think, you know, FAU's got nothing to lose. They're not going to come in to sit on the ball, I don't think. So I, I was going to say 38-10, 42-10, somewhere in there. I don't think they'll be able to put up a lot of points. So that's what um, I'm going to go with there. James, you got some fun facts for us about FAU. Yeah, good to honest. know you've got the cover there. I see you've got it's, the cover. It's right on yeah, it. Vegas yeah. knows. Hey, Vegas Alan's, knows. Alan's lock of the week right there is Florida covering. <laughs> <laughs> I would not say that. Not, not lock of the week by me. So some fun some fun facts. Uh, McElwain, first Florida head coach to win seven SEC games in his first season. And he's currently tied for the most overall wins in his first season with several people. Meyer, Spurrier, Hall, and Graves. He's going to beat that. He's going to get that 10th win this week, um, which will put him by himself in that company. Pretty incredible. Pretty great. Last week, I didn't even know this, that was that was Florida, the Florida Gators' 700th win in history. Our record is 700, 401, and 40, which is a solid record. I would, solid. I would like to see our record since 1992. I think yeah, that would be, be really much nice. more impressive. Did a lot of losing before then. <laughs> we have played Florida Atlantic uh, twice before in 2007 and then I think 2011. Both times, significant victories. Um, lastly, probably a fun fact, uh, FAU is in Boca Raton. Their mascot's Owlsy, the burrowing owl. And I, you know, I never knew the Terrifying. answer to this until right now. Like, why are they the owls? It seems like a really random thing. Well, President Lyndon B. Johnson made notice of the presence of owls at an FAU dedication ceremony. And a few years later, the National Audubon Society declared FAU's land as an official owl sanctuary. So they were right. sort of indigenous to the, the campus. And so there you go. That's Owls. why they're the Owls. Yeah, the Owls. So we're playing the Owls. 
I don't think there's another Division One football team named the Owls, so they've got that one, and there's not, not another Division One football team named the Gators. We have two unique mascots going at it this weekend. There we go. And we have a really cool opportunity coming up in this next segment to interview a different type of guest for us. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Excited to welcome to the program uh, Coach Charlie Partridge, the head coach of Florida Atlantic, joining us today from Boca Raton. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be on, guys. Appreciate taking the time. So, Coach, fill us in a little bit on the state of the program here. We know you have a really young team. Uh, things are trending up for you a little bit. Tell us about how you're feeling about the program right now. You know, I'm excited about the long-term future of where Florida Atlantic is headed. It's uh, it's It's been tough in the win-loss column this year. Uh, but right now, you know, when you look at the two deeps, we're the fourth youngest team in America. And uh, we're starting five true freshmen, truly first-year guys on defense, and our defense continues to improve. Uh, on offense, we've been battling some injury issues, and uh, that's gotten some new guys in the lineup as we've gone forward. But uh, that, along with all the foundation building, put together two really good recruiting classes here, uh, You know, some record-breaking recruiting classes for Florida Atlantic. Uh, and also our team GPA has gone through the roof from bottom, you know, bottom third of the league to where we're second behind Rice. Uh, not like I said, I don't even know that that counts. So there's a lot of really good things happening here and uh, just continuing to build foundation level up. I'd like to ask, what was attractive to you about taking this job in the first place? You know, it's not someplace that's a traditional power. What um, really brought you to the job? You know, it was uh, a couple things. Born and raised down in Broward County and then went away for a long time and uh, got a chance to work at, uh, you know, Pitt and Wisconsin, Arkansas, Iowa State, Eastern, mostly up north. But during all those times, I was recruiting down here to South Florida. Um, had a strong tie down to my home county of Broward County, which is the next one south from where we're at. So always uh, got a chance to, to be a part of what South Florida football is. And I watched Florida Atlantic from a distance, you know, grow from – a startup program, quickly go to 1A and win the Sun Belt, uh, then jump into Conference USA. And then they went through uh, so a little bit of coaching turmoil there for a few years. And as as I grew in my career and felt I was ready to take a head coaching job, it, uh, it, it was very attractive to me with new on-campus stadium, uh, you know, access to a lot of people that can help financially support the program. Uh, this, this winter, we anticipate breaking ground on an indoor facility, which That'll be huge for us with all the lightning down here. Um, so there, there's a, just an enormous amount of potential down here. And uh, the high school coaches have been awesome since I've come here. So I'm excited about the future. I really am. And speaking of the future, what do you think, if you can boil it down to a couple of strategic points, will it take for FAU to become an annual contender in Conference USA? Well, I think first it starts with the recruiting. I mean, the, I was a really, really smart D-line coach when I had J.J. Watt, right? <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I was one of the best punt return coaches in America when Darrell Revis was back there returning punts <laughs> for us. So you know, your X's and your O's become a lot more powerful with your Jimmy's and Joe's. And the great thing about down here is from I-4, which, as you guys know, that's what connects Orlando to Tampa to Daytona, from I-4 down, we can really put together a heck of a roster. So to me, it starts with recruiting. And then when those kids get in here, you have to do a great job with development. Um, we've put a lot of uh, investment into supporting these kids nutritionally. And then your X's and O's, you've asked that part of it. The thing you have access to here is speed. So a lot of your, uh, you know, your, your decisions from a schematic standpoint should be tailored on that. Um, when I was 
at Wisconsin, the flip side of it, people up there are very, very big people. <laughs> the, 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 it seems like all the guys are six five and the women are six one. So <laughs> you uh, you built you built your program starting with the O line, and then from there you worked the tailback, and that's the formula that made sense there. Um, here we need to build what we're doing around speed because we have access to so many quick kids down here. And speaking of that access to speed and the fact that I think what 97% of your roster are guys from Florida, your defensive, yes. your defensive style, your theory, what has it been influenced by and what is it? Are you an aggressive man to man kind of guy? Are you a disguised zone? Like what, what sort of is your defensive theory and philosophy when you're coaching at a school like FAU? We're, we're going to base it out of quarters because quarters is so flexible. Um, you know, you can go press quarters, which allows your corners to play the press man that so many kids are trained down here to do from uh, the start of their, their careers in Little League. I mean, they play press man from fourth grade all the way until they get to college. And when you get the opportunity to do that, uh, it's it's beneficial for those guys because they have years of reps. Um, also, you need to have, in my opinion, safeties available on both sides because of all the spread, run, bubble, all the things that you know, really thin and flatten your defense. So quarters allows a safety to be available on both sides. You know, when you, when you do go down to man free or cover three and close the middle of the field, you've now you've got an alley runner that has to come from the middle of the field on those types of plays. So we're going to base it out of quarters and then uh, we're going to mix in man free on certain down and distances and, and we're going to bring enough blitz uh, on third down. And that's where, First and second down success allows you to spin the dial on third down if you get ahead of the chains. So this is your second year on the job. Uh, what is, would you say, maybe even some unexpected difficulties as you've kind of gone through the learning curve of being a coach? You know, it's interesting. It's I think my learning curve has been different from some other head coaches. I've heard a lot of other head coaches that talk about how the off-the-field stuff caught them off guard. None of that really caught me off guard, and it goes back to when I was at Iowa State. I was a graduate assistant, and Dan McCartney promoted me to director of football operations for two years. And while it wasn't the career path I wanted to go on, so that's why I went to Eastern Illinois to get back on the field, the, the things that I learned in that position are uh, extremely, extremely valuable for my day-to-day -day operations here um, because I just see things that I would not have if I hadn't had that experience. You know, I mean, from – you know, budgets to, you know, travel plans to, you know, plan manifests to who sits where on a plane because it does matter. All those things, you know, motivational type things that Mac would have me help him with at that time. All that stuff, very comfortable. Um, obviously, defense, is, defense has been my background other than a couple of years early in my career where I actually coached running backs. Um, the, the, the biggest learning curve for me has been the big picture flow of the game, fourth down decisions, end of the game, you know, managing the clock, things like that. That's where I feel like I've really grown more than I can even describe these last couple of years. So speaking of that, I saw an article that you were leaning more towards stat oriented decision making this year. And this is maybe just a general question. It comes up a lot in Gainesville because Coach McElwain sure. tends to be an aggressive fourth down kind of guy. Um, you know, there's two things maybe to speak on here. One the two-point conversion chart, which is always talked about in football, which seems to be at times a little odd. And two, how aware are head coaches of the data that's been done in some of the Ivy League schools on just 
sort of not punting really at all and going forward on fourth <laughs> down more off. Like what are some of the general thoughts? Do you consider that as a staff? Is that something you guys think about doing or do football coaches just say, Hey, that stuff really lives in the theoretical realm? No, no, we, we, we definitely employ uh, those concepts and it really depends on, on who we're playing. Okay. So two weeks ago we played Western Kentucky and, and it was at their place and they got a heck of a ball club this year with a really good quarterback. Um, and, so we felt like to keep it out of their hands, we needed to be aggressive on fourth down to steal some possessions. And we ended up going for it. If you, we had a fake punt. If you include that in it, we went for, went for it on fourth down seven times. Um, there are certain field zones where you you tend to be more aggressive and this carries throughout all the analytics. You know, if you go from the 50 down into the plus 30 ish range, you're going to be more aggressive there because some would argue, you know what, you're too far for a field goal. You're too close for a punt because how much are you really gaining with that punt unless you pin them inside the, you know, the 10, which is challenging. You know, if it bounces in the end zone, you may have a, a 20 or 30-yard net punt. Um, so part of it, the field zone plays into it as well, where you are on the field for that fourth down decision. But uh, analytics takes into account the opponent. Uh, the opponent's field goal kicker, our field goal kicker, all those things come into play uh, in your fourth down decisions. And you talk about it throughout the course of the week with your staff and with your quarterbacks. So they understand, you know, it may be third and seven where a lot of schools are out there saying, you got to throw it to the sticks. You got to throw it to the sticks. Well, certain parts of the field, our quarterbacks know that on three or less, I'm going to go for it. So they may take that check down route and put us in position for a more successful fourth down attempt. Coach, this is your first time in the swamp, I believe. Uh, what are you expecting out of that experience, and what are you telling your guys? You know, it's actually my second time. I was there a couple of years ago when I was at Arkansas, um, and and my brother is an alum of Florida, so I was there a number of times when I was a, a young kid. But, uh, you know, the biggest thing is we want our kids not to get overwhelmed with uh, the scenery beyond our own football team and, and we'll use crowd noise all week and all that kind of stuff. And I want them to embrace it and enjoy it. But at the same time, uh, you know, when, when their helmet goes on and we're really going to work, they need to keep their eyes on their keys uh, and, and do their best to not get distracted, but at the same time and enjoy the moment of being in uh, what has really become one of the more tradition rich stadiums in the country you know you want to you want to enjoy those moments but the best way to enjoy it is to play your best football out there and put on a, a heck of a show and speaking of of playing great football we know that you've recruited a bunch of really successful guys Alex Collins at Arkansas being one of them had a huge game this past weekend against LSU and then most notably J.J. Watt what was it like coaching J.J. Watt I mean he's pretty much a sensation now you know did you know right <laughs> away that you had a guy that was just going to be incredible or was it a bit of a surprise i mean what was the jj watt story like well it was, it was uh definitely i think a surprise you know he was a walk-on um he came to wisconsin as a walk-on he went to central michigan out of high school and uh ended up transferring back to wisconsin walked on so we had to sit a year and that year we had a really good o-line all all five actually we had a kid who'd never started who was our sixth o-lineman he got drafted and the other five got drafted top three rounds and he was going against those guys every day in scout team and he's a big imposing guy but we've all seen you know a lot of big imposing guys that aren't necessarily good football players um JJ obviously is very good and and the first time he really 
stood out as someone that it was going to be different. Now I couldn't have anticipated him, him being where he is now, but uh, he, he would wait for me because as defensive staff, you know, early in the week, we weren't getting done until as normal, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, I'd come out of the defensive staff room and he'd be sitting in my office waiting for me because he wanted to watch himself with me as a scout team D lineman because he, he, that we want to talk about a kid that values time. He knows that his career at some point is going to end. That football careers only last so long. And that's why you see this kid. I mean, he rents a, he rents a little apartment up in Pewaukee, Wisconsin in the off season to train because he just wants to squeeze everything he possibly can out of his career while he's in the NFL. And that's how we approach things at Wisconsin. And there's not a lot of kids at that age that really understand the value of time. And he does. Yeah, he's definitely seems like he's he's always been that consummate hard worker, and it's a it's a wonderful story when you hear those kind of stories. Because I think, yeah. you know, getting a chance to do what we do and getting a chance to do what you do every day, you know that there's a lot of really talented guys, but it it does seem to be the difference is in the details and the work ethic, and obviously JJ Watt speaks to that. Well, uh, Coach Charlie Partridge, FAU. Coming in this weekend, thank you so much for visiting with us. Alan and I certainly enjoyed it. Uh, wonderful insights today. We wish you the best of luck this weekend. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. So as per the usual, let's finish off this episode, episode 12, with a look around the country at some of the most interesting topics and things that are going on now. One of those things certainly is, or are rather, the coaching vacancies that are available. There's a lot of them. There's a bunch of them. So Alan, why don't you rank for me in order, one through eight, there's ten, but we're going to go with the best eight that we think. Rank these for me as best to worst. Best to Let's worst. Let's go best to worst. Let's start with the creme de la creme and then work away to the bottom. Okay, I'm going to go against the grain here and say I think Miami is the best job out there because of just the inherent recruiting base. Like, if you can come and get that going in Miami, you can compete with anybody. Let's say Southern Cal, then the next USC, South Carolina. Then I go Maryland fourth. Virginia Tech fifth. I think some people are overrating that Virginia Tech job. I think it's a little harder to win there. There's a reason it was dormant for so long before Frank Beamer. I don't know if the next guy is going to be able to come in and just pick it up from where he left off. Then I'm going to go UCF, which I actually think is a pretty underrated job because of the state of Florida stuff. And then another year might be more high profile. Then I go Illinois, which, you know, there's room in the Big Ten to make noise. And then Minnesota, which is just a tough place. What about you? Where would you disagree with that? So I think I'd I'd swap Southern Cal and Miami. Um, I actually grew up a huge Hurricane fan for the people on the podcast. That don't Gas! Know. Yeah, I lived in Coral Gables. I went there all the time. Like It's huge for me. But I think the fact that Miami does not have an on-campus stadium and the facilities that people want, that is the difference between them and Southern Cal. Of course, Southern Cal's you know stadium really isn't quote-unquote on-campus either. So um that's probably the difference if miami ever had an on-campus stadium and some facilities you could miami would be a job that tons of people would take so i'm gonna i'm gonna flop those two um from there i like south carolina at uh three because they're in the sec they're in a winnable east spurriers built them up where they have a national reputation it's still a tough place to recruit um i like that there I like Maryland at four, and the reason I like Maryland at four is is Kevin Plank, who started Under Armour, has this dream for Maryland to become really very similar to what Oregon has become with Nike, and and there's deep pockets there. He wants to win, and coaches know the importance of having a booster that really wants to win, um, so I think the Maryland job is better than the Virginia Tech job because of that reason. Votech does not have that kind of backing. Uh, I think Maryland does. 
And then I think the rest of the list, I agree with. You could swap Illinois and Minnesota, but that would really only be because Minnesota's been more successful recently. Illinois should be a decent football school. They've been so bad for so long. Someone's going to wake them up, and they're going to be decent again. But, man, they've been bad. So... So yeah, really, it's just Southern Cal and Miami that's that's the main switch. Other than that, I think that you know all those jobs are going to be pretty much in that order. It will be interesting to see who goes where. Yeah, it's going to be a crazy offseason because people are going to get poached from their current schools. There's going to be so many openings when all is said and done. All right, so the Gators have clinched the SEC East. They're on their way to Atlanta. The West is still technically up for grabs. What are the possible outcomes for us? Who might be who might we be seeing in Atlanta? Well, we know that it's not going to be LSU, which brings a smile to my face only because we said on the show that LSU was not very good and we thought they would get exposed. Of course, I was rooting for them to win because I thought they weren't very good and they would get exposed. Um, But they're not going to be there. However, Old Miss still could get there. It's a possibility. Old Miss still could get there. They play LSU this weekend, and if they can beat LSU, they will then have to play Mississippi State. So they have a very difficult road. That's tough. Two rivals. Very difficult road. Old Miss is a very up-and-down team. Um, you know, take it or leave it there. Alabama, obviously, mathematically, has a very high chance of going. Uh, all they have to do is win out, and they'll be in. And winning out for them means just beating Auburn, which you think just beating Auburn should be a simple task. Iron but Bowl, in that game, in the Iron Bowl, weird things have happened. Auburn has shown some level of feistiness recently. You think it's going to be Bama, but I think I speak for every Gator family. We're all just praying somehow Old Miss makes it in there because even with Treon, we could beat Old Miss. Yeah. Um, so that's got to be what we're rooting for. So that's what we're looking at, uh, you know, with with regards to the, the West opponents. So this weekend, certainly put on your you know your your Rebel hat and and, and uh, root for Old Miss to beat LSU. And there's also a little bit of news right now in Florida world. Will Greer in his appeal process. I guess, had a conference call. What's that all about? Well, today, right now, actually, in the past couple hours, they've had the conference call with the NCAA. And this is supposed to be, from what I understand, pretty far advanced into kind of the results of what this suspension is going to be. Um, You never know what exactly is going on because the NCAA does not set a timetable for what these decisions mean or what these conference calls are. You kind of have these calls until eventually they say, okay, here's our decision. Um... So we know that happened, which is progress, which means we're getting closer to finding the answer. Um, On the sort of off-the-radar rumor... um, Deep, deep rumor. Deep, deep rumor. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen at all. I have no reliable Watergate source here that's leaking inside information. But the person that told me this has been consistently reliable over time. Take that with a grain of salt because, again, even this person is saying, hey, I don't really know how solid this is, but it's coming from a few solid sources. And the rumor's twofold. One is that Greer has won his appeal, or at least in the eyes of his lawyer, that is a a done deal. The NCAA will reduce his suspension to the end of this year. Which would be huge. Which would be the first big sigh of relief for Gator fans. It means that, hey, we're back for next year. But two, and and probably the thing that makes your, your heart jump for a moment is that uh, Will Greer and his lawyers are attempting to get him back for the SEC title game. Now, press the pause button there for a second and think about what this means. This is a rumor. I'm not reporting Total this. Rumor. We are not breaking this. This is not something we're going to do on this show very often. However, we thought it'd be worth bringing up because it brings up a lot of interesting mental Just scenarios. Just the chaos of it, really. What, yeah, you know, we're not going to have time to cover it right now. We're at the end of our time here for the show. But obviously, you think, do you play Will if he actually does come back over Trion if he hasn't practiced or played in months? I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff to get into there. But just know right now, there is a source that's pretty inside that is suggesting that that's what they're going to go for. 
So but it's a somewhat it's a, a possibility possible. that that's still a gonna... huge, huge, right. huge, huge long shot. Yes, and so that's building momentum. Anyway, take that for what you will. You know, leave that on the positive note. Maybe some something on the crazy will board. happen. Yeah, right. Just slap it up there. Just keep it in your mind. Know you heard it here first. If it happens, and if you if it doesn't happen, then obviously don't blame us. We're just we're just spreading the gossip. <laughs> it's total gossip. I can't even believe uh, that there are people even insinuating that. That's a, it feels crazy to me that that's even out there. So this is could be just total message board rumordom, but there you go. And on not a rumor side, there will be a Driscoll playing in the swamp this weekend. Jason Driscoll is the backup quarterback for FAU. He has seen significant time this year because their starting quarterback Quez Johnson went down with an injury. He will be there. Look for him. He's young. He's a Driscoll. He is back in the swamp. The brother of, uh, obviously, the infamous Jeff, who's actually having a very good year this year. Lighten it up, Tech. yeah. Yep. Alan, any closing thoughts for episode 12? No, looking forward to another hopeful big Gator win, and then on to FSU after that, which is always one of the crazier weeks of the year. We want to give a thanks, as always, uh, Brittany Lee providing our fun facts, Matt Seitz, for uh, setting up the Will You Get interview, and then Amy Campbell for putting us in touch with Coach Partridge. Appreciate that. Yeah, this show would not be possible without the help of our friends and family and and, uh, the listeners, you guys out there. So thanks, as always, for tuning in. We certainly appreciate doing it. We're glad that we're able to bring it to you each week. And we'll see you next week. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.